All right, we're going to study God's Word, so I hope you got one of these. We're going to open it up to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. So kind of flip open to the middle of your Bible, roughly turn toward the right, and the largest prophetic book is Jeremiah. So we'll be um, walking through the first chapter of this book and spending about three weeks in it. We've just spent several weeks in the New Testament book of Romans, and now we're just going to spend three weeks concentrated in just one chapter of the book of Jeremiah. The name of the series is The Way of the Word. So just think about uh, that for a second with me. There's a way about you, right? People who know you well, friends of yours, could say, um, so-and-so is the kind of person who, and then you finish the sentence, right? And if they finish the sentence correctly, they've not talked about some anomaly, some, something you do from time to time. They've kind of captured the essence. If they put you in a bottle, this, is, this kind of gets at what you're like, how you carry yourself, your attitude, your actions, the things you care about, right? So um, I was at a conference several years ago, and you know, when you go to a bunch of conferences, you get used to the way that people are introduced. There's a lot of encouragement involved, as there should be. You're giving honor where honor is due. Uh, well, this was the most unconventional introduction of the main speaker. The main speaker was David Pallison, who has gone to be with the Lord, wonderful brother, it was the executive director of Christian Counseling and Education Foundation for many years. Uh, and he was the, the featured speaker that evening. Well, his, his dear friend was the conference host. So his dear friend comes up, and he's not going to do a conventional introduction of David Pallison. So what he does is he reaches down, David Pallison's satchel was right next to him and he just grabs David's satchel and comes running up on the stage and he starts poking fun at the satchel and he's, he's saying, you know, this is a, it's, it's nice leather but it's, it's, it's been through it. Obviously, this, this, there's a story to tell. This satchel has been put through its paces. It's got some scratches and some scars and so on and so forth and he actually making fun of and playing, he, he says, I could actually introduce you to David Pallison meaningfully by just simply making observations about his bag, right? So in that sense, there was kind of a merge between the way of Pallison and the way of his satchel. There was something that you could see, a common point there. Well, there, there's something about the word. The word has a way about it. So often in scripture, the word of God is personified, in Scripture, the Word of God is personified. It is the subject of verbs. The Word is comforting. The Word is healing people. The Word cuts like a scalpel in Hebrews chapter 4. The Word multiplies and spread rapidly in the book of Acts, right? So the Word is doing things. It's in motion, and it has characteristics about it, traits about it. And what I hope we're going to see just in these three messages studying the very first chapter of Jeremiah is that the way of the word is, is relentless. It is a relentless word. So if you would follow along as I read our text. Jeremiah chapter one, beginning in verse one. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests living in Anatoth, in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came. So there's personification right there. It's not just that the Lord came. The word came. The word of the Lord came came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. It also, that's the word, the word also came throughout the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. 
So these are the words of, as you see there in verse one, the words of Jeremiah, but they are also, verse two, the words of God. There's no conflict there. God is superintending the words of Jeremiah to be his very words, authoritatively speaking, to his people. Rabbis in Jeremiah's time called him the weeping prophet. He was, he was born and raised in a small town about three miles north of Jerusalem. His, he was a preacher's kid. His dad was a priest. You see his name, Hilkiah, uh, living in Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin, so it was a devout household. It was a household that honored the Lord and the worship of God was important. In Hilkiah's household, Jeremiah grew up cutting his teeth, probably on the word of God. And then at a young age, Jeremiah is called to be not a priest, but he's called by God to be a prophet. And he feels like it's too early. Jeremiah's gonna say that. We'll look at that text next week where Jeremiah says you you came too soon I'm not ready I'm too young to do this and the reason that there would have been apprehension to be a prophet is obvious when you study the history of 7th century Judah prophets weren't faring well at that time this was the worst half century imaginable in the last 50 years you had the rule of Josiah's dad a guy named Amon who was a terrible king uh, exceeded only by the horror that was his granddad Manasseh, who was the worst king maybe in all of Israel's history. So we got 50 bad years that lead up to this moment where Jeremiah becomes a prophet. And when you get tapped to be a prophet, you got one job. God says, here's your one job. Stand where I tell you to stand and say what I tell you to say. And let the chips fall where they may. I'm not asking you to edit it. I'm not asking you to improve it. You say, thus saith the Lord. You give a direct quote of what I told you in your ear. And then you see what happens next. So that was his role, that was his call. And chapter one is about the call, you might even have that in your Bible, the call of Jeremiah. And in that sense, it makes sense that we're talking about God's word because we're talking about the call of a prophet. If we're talking about the call of of a butcher, we'd be talking about meat. If we're talking about the call of a mechanic, we'd be talking about about tools, right? But if we're talking about the call of a prophet, we're gonna talk about the word of God. That's what he does. That was the tool of his trade was the word of God. And in this sense, even in the first three verses, we're gonna pick up and discern something about the way of the word of God. And that something is, it's relentless. It has this quality of relentlessness about it. Now, in order for us to see that, we gotta do some background work, some history work in our text because it's not immediately apparent to us that the word is relentless simply by these first three verses. But, but think about this. So in our time, I could say, for example, you know, around the time of 9-11, and many of you, if you were alive at that time, instantly you're able to pull data from that season of time, events that were surrounding 9-11, right? That's meaningful, that date. In that sense, the original audience didn't lose any of what Jeremiah is talking about. When he, basically in just two verses, in verse two and verse three, you've walked through 40 years of history. And you've done it in three quick stops. Stop number one, you see in verse two, the 13th year of Josiah. That would have been like 9-11. People would have known, oh yeah, I remember what happened during the time of Josiah. Stop number two is verse three, throughout the days of Jehoiakim. That was not lost on the original audience. We remember very well the time period in which Jehoiakim was king of the southern kingdom. And then stop number three, the famous fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, that date was burned into the brain of every Hebrew 
in Jerusalem. They would have known these dates and what the upshot of that message would have been, yeah, the word just kept coming, didn't it? It just kept coming through each of those very different seasons. The one characteristic that rides all the way through is the word was still there. It was relentless. So the word of God is relentless. Point number one, the relentless word in a season of blessing. The relentless word in a season of blessing. So throughout scripture we see that God's word brought life to God's people. And that's what you saw in the period of Josiah that's talked about right here in our text. Think about, if you've read the Psalms, there are a number of Psalms that are about Scripture itself. Psalm 1 is about Scripture. Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Psalm 29. These are classic Psalms about what the Word of God can do when it's let loose on God's people, when it's uncaged. I love how Psalm 19 talks about God's word getting things done in action. It says this, the law of the Lord, so there's God's word, is perfect, reviving the soul. So there's personification. The law is reviving. It's doing something that's making people come to life. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the, of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Just in those couple of verses, what do you see? You see the way of the word. It's the kind of word that does these kinds of things. It puts light in the eyes. It puts joy in the heart. It revives things from dead places to living places. It, it makes wise the simple. It's the kind of thing it's doing all the time. The word loves doing these things. And, and by the way, that's the kind of stuff the word was doing in the time of Josiah. It was making dead things live. It was reviving the people of God. And the people of God needed some reviving because of the last 50 years. You could really summarize the time leading up to Josiah in this way. God's people, riddled with idolatry, were being reformed by the word. Were being reformed by the word. So so where do you get some of this history and background? And this is where it's a beautiful thing that we have prophetic material in the Bible, we have psalms in the Bible, we have historical books in the Bible because they all complement one another where you can go and dig into 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23 and you can see Josiah taking the throne, doing the things that he did that made him a great king and then you back up from chapter 22 to 2 Kings chapter 21 and you see his dad doing horrible things. You see his grandpa doing exceedingly horrible things. It said, it summarized the rule of Manasseh by saying, um, He shed blood from end to end in Jerusalem. There was blood shed from one end of Jerusalem all the way to the other. And so you see when you read chapter 21 and you read the the work and leadership of the administration of Manasseh and the work and leadership of the administration of Josiah's dad, Amon, and you see these men did not set their son up to succeed. They had turned God's people away from the Lord. They turned them toward the worship of Baal, the worship of the Asherah, right? All these foreign gods, the moon gods, gods of the stars, they directed, they built temples in high places. They built altars on every hill in Judah and in Jerusalem to worship other gods. And then Josiah gets himself a prophet. He's got a good heart. It says he's a lot like David, the old king from 300 years ago. And we got another one who's a lot like 
David, but this king, he needs a prophet. He needs access to God's voice and he got himself one the 13th year. That's what he's talking about in our passage. The 13th year, he got himself a prophet because in the 13th year of Josiah's reign, God said, Jeremiah, here, I got a job for you. I want you to come up alongside this king named Josiah and put the word in his ears. And as Josiah is hearing the word of God through the prophet, he starts realizing things. He starts seeing things he never saw before. He walks past the temple and says, has that always been in that state of utter disrepair? So often in the Old Testament, the state and condition of the physical edifice that was the temple is a metaphor for the state and condition of God's people spiritually. And it's sort of like that's what's happening. It's like Josiah walks by and he says, has it always been that disheveled, God's house? And he said, that, that needs to change. Somebody get in there and clean up. Somebody get in there, repair this thing. It's, it's hanging down over there. There's trash over here. Somebody get in, we'll pay him whatever he needs, pay the man what he needs, clean this place up, fire up the altar, get the tongs, because we're gonna get this place back up and going. We're about to worship God again. It matters to him. He's being shaped by the word, right? And so he's ordering these repairs to take place. And, and here's what happened. You go back and read in 2 Kings and you find out that somebody's in there cleaning up and picking up trash and they're rummaging around in one of the rooms and they come up and they find this book and it says the book of the law. And they said, oh, I wonder what this is. And they walk up to King Josiah In the book of the law, often in the Old Testament, that's a phrase that specifically points to the book of Deuteronomy, specifically. And so this person walks up to the king and says, I've got this thing called the book of the law. I was laying over there in the the trash. And King Josiah says, well, what are you doing standing there? Read it to me. I've canceled all my appointments. Read me that book. And he reads Deuteronomy 1, 2, 10, 15, 27, 28. And when he gets to chapter 28, the king hears these words from a thousand years before. If you are not careful to obey all the words of this law, which are written in this scroll, by fearing this glorious and awe-inspiring name, the Lord your God, he will bring wondrous plagues on you and on your descendants. You will be ripped out of the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will worship other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. You will find no peace among those nations, and there will be no resting place for the soul of your foot. And no sooner had these words been read in the ears of King Josiah and he rips his clothes, he rips his shirt because in ancient Hebrew culture, you wanted your outsides to match your insides. And internally, he was deeply vexed because he's saying, where has this book been for the last 50 years? Dad, why weren't you reading this before the people? Grandpa Manasseh, where has this thing been? Sitting in a trash pile in the temple? Not today. And he is deeply, he is a man on fire from that moment. He says, ring all the bells in the city and bring everybody and I want them to sit down. And he sits down the entire city of people and he doesn't give them a TED talk and he doesn't soften them up with jokes. He says, buckle in, I'm gonna read you Deuteronomy, the whole thing. So get comfortable. 
And then he reads the same book of the law that was read to him. He reads it over all the people so that you can feel like I felt how far we've strayed. How could we arrive at such a condition, such a disheveled, faithless, apostate condition as we are this day because we've neglected this book? He is a man lit up by the word of God. And the the word of God brought this season of renewal to God's people there at the end of the seventh century through Josiah and Jeremiah working in tandem And Josiah, if we thought that that event was just all of it, it wasn't a performative event, right? He was just getting started. He said, I want an inventory of everything in the temple. And when the inventory comes back to him, he says, what is this trinket to the moon god doing in the temple? What is this Asherah pole doing? What is this uh, object that's used for the worship of Baal doing in God's temple and he creates a dumpster fire in the Kidron Valley and into that dumpster fire literally go all the trinkets, all the vestiges of the false worship of God's people for centuries and he says it's going to burn and it's going to burn tonight. Now we become faithful. Today is the day. It was a season of great blessing. So we see the relentless word in a season of blessing. Second, We see the relentless word in a season of resistance. And that's what would have easily been conjured up in the mind of the people reading this word, right? Is when, when it says, it also came throughout the days of Jehoiakim, they would have thought, oh yeah, those were the days of resistance. Those were the days when God's people started to hate and resist God's word. Things aren't going well, things are bad, Why? Josiah's dead, and Josiah's son's name isn't really Jehoiakim. So even though this text calls him Jehoiakim, even though everybody in town called him Jehoiakim, that was not his given name. So you got to back up and you got to take in some history. Again, that's found over there in 2 Kings. Judah, at this time, is caught between three global superpowers, all of whom want more real estate. And there's this sweet piece of real estate right in between all of them. So there's Judah. And to their north, there's the massive empire of Assyria that's been at the king of the hill for a couple hundred years by this point. And then on their eastern side is Babylon. That's the up-and-coming young one who you gotta look out for. And then on the southern border is Egypt, the power of the Egyptian kingdom, and they can't really escape much to the west because there's the Mediterranean Sea. So they're, they're in a spot, right? That's the, the background of what's going on here. And so Judah goes to war with Egypt, and that's how Josiah dies. Josiah is killed in action. He takes an arrow, and he's mortally wounded, and he dies, and now we're gonna find who's gonna be the next king, and through a series of events involving one son named Jehoahaz, and he serves for just a little while, then he's out, and then it becomes this other, right? Jehoiakim becomes king, but the thing is, again, his name wasn't Jehoiakim. On his birth certificate, his given name by his parents was Eliakim, not Jehoiakim, which just begs the question, how did Jehoiakim get named Eliakim? or rather Eliakim, how did he get named Jehoiakim, and how did he become the king? And the answer is, the Pharaoh did it. The Pharaoh of Egypt, 2 Kings 23, 34 says, then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king, and 
changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. So we got ourselves a puppet king. He's been tapped by Pharaoh himself. I like you. I think you'll be a good leader. I'm going to make you king of this kingdom that I've just dominated. And I've also, I don't like your name. I'm going to name you something else. I'm going to call, this is my pet name for you. Now you're going to go by Jehoiakim. Everybody call him Jehoiakim from this moment on, right? And so and all the beauty is all the while throughout the days of Jehoiakim, the word of God keeps coming. It, it has this way about it. It keeps unrelentingly coming. And look, the resistance that God's people faced during that time wasn't just from the outside. It wasn't just, just Egypt's influence on us. It was from the inside. Jehoiakim, he was, uh, he was raised a Hebrew, but he didn't have the heart of a Hebrew. He didn't have a heart that was faithful to God, he, was, he did not want to be like his dad, Josiah. He wanted to be a little bit more like his grandpa, Amon, and his great-grandpa, Manasseh. That's, that was his goals, his aspirations. And, and here is what he was like. Jeremiah's new boss, Jehoiakim, kills prophets and burns Bibles. He kills prophets and burns Bibles. So you, you may remember a number of key features of what happened when God's word encountered God's king in the time of Josiah. The book of the law is brought to the king of Judah and the king of Judah hears it and how does he respond? He tears something and he burns something. He, he tears his clothes and he burns the idols. Well now it's kind of deja vu because the book of the law is gonna be brought to another king of Judah and there's gonna be a tearing and there's gonna be a burning but it's a lot different. Here's what it says. The king, Jehoiakim, sent Jehudi to get the scroll and he took it from the chamber of Elisha the scribe. Jehudi then read it in the hearing of the king and all the officials who were standing by the king. Since it was the ninth month, the king was sitting in his winter quarters with a fire burning in front of him and as soon as Jehudi would read three or four columns, Jehoiakim would cut the scroll with a scribe's knife and throw the columns into the fire in the hearth until the entire scroll was consumed by the fire in the hearth. It's like we've been here before, but everything feels different, right? Because Josiah heard the word of God read to him, tore his clothes and burnt their idols. His son Jehoiakim hears the word read to him and he tears and burns the Bible. Utterly different day, right? And not, not only that, it's not just that he has an antipathy f- for the word of God. He hates everybody who proclaims God's word. So there's a guy named Uriah who was a faithful prophet back in that time. He did, he did the one job he was called to do. Stand where I tell you to stand. Say what I tell you to say. And that's what Uriah did. And Jehoi- Jehoiakim said, I hate you and I'm gonna kill you. And Uriah fled for the hills. And Jehoiakim sent his Gestapo and found him and brought him back and executed him right there in the palace and then threw his corpse on a heap of, of graves for the, for the shameful, for the dishonorable people of Judah. It's a different day, right? And what did the word of God keep doing while all of that was happening? The answer is, it just kept coming. <laughs> it, it had this way about it or you couldn't shake it. It was relentless. The the first part of verse two, look down in verse two. The word of the Lord came 
And then in verse three though, the verb form is different. You see that? It could literally be translated, and it went on coming in the days of Jehoiakim. It was relentless despite the resistance, despite Jehoiakim's protestations to the contrary, him, his authority notwithstanding, here comes the word. <laughs> it just keeps barreling through. Even when he's throwing it in the fire, it just keeps coming. The relentless word in the season of blessing, the relentless word in the season of resistance, and finally, the relentless word in the season of ruin. In a season of ruin. So at the time of of Jeremiah's ministry, the Assyrian Empire had held absolute control, but, but the sun was, was going down. It was setting on Assyria's rule, and the sun was rising on young Babylon. That's what was transpiring here. The rising global power in the world at this point is Babylon. And, and here's the thing. God had told through Jeremiah, this is the way God did it. He said, when I'm, t- when I'm about to do something, do I not reveal it to the prophets? He says that. And so he revealed it to the prophets. And so Jeremiah is talking, whoever's standing in front of him, whether it's Judah or whether it's kings, and he says, I'm telling you, God told me what you're about to do. He told me what he's about to do, and he told me what you're about to do. Here's what God's about to do. He's sending Babylon as an agent of his judgment against your apostasy and the people's apostasy. And here's what you're gonna do you're gonna be tempted to pick up the phone and forge a political alliance with Egypt. You're gonna try to call your friend, you're gonna try to to get a fixer to help you get Babylon off your back, and I'm just telling you, don't make that call, because it's not gonna work, because you got bigger problems than Babylon. God the Lord Almighty has been spurned by his people for centuries. He's coming to town. God the Holy One is coming to Jerusalem. And so he said, don't call Egypt, trust the Lord. Guess what they did? When Babylon comes knocking on the eastern door, they called Egypt. They didn't trust the Lord and the whole thing went down. Judah trusted every voice but God's. You ever find yourself in a season of life where you kind of can't believe where you are, where you look and you say, how did I get here? My heart is so cold toward God. I'm not sure I even believe what I used to believe when I was raised in a Christian household. I just, I'm not sure I believe this. I think I'm done. There's a lot of deconversion stories going on right now. A lot of hashtag exvangelicals, people leaving the faith right now, believing that their doubts are their most authentic thing about them. That the one thing that can't be doubted are my doubts. They're, they're, they're true, right? D- doubt is really fashionable right now in 2021. Deconstruction, it's it's happening left and right. It's what all the cool kids are doing, right? But here's the thing. And some some of those who are deconstructing and becoming ex-evangelicals, they're becoming that because of pain and trauma that they've experienced because they've been deeply disillusioned by people who let them down and who were actually hypocrites and finally their true colors came shining through and now I don't know what to do with this. I'm, I'm in a spin cycle because of what I've seen and people I trusted, whose faith I respected. There are others who the story is not pain and trauma. There are others who are scoffers and they mock the things that their parents taught them from God's word. They mock the Christianity that they formerly professed. But look, 
Poking holes in someone's claims is easy work. That, that's lazy mental work. It's one thing, look, any old hack can tear down a wall, but I can't build a house. I can knock down a wall, I can't build a house. There's a sense in which that's what's going on, left, right, and center. People poking holes and just having fun deconstructing everybody else's faith. And then you follow them home after they've destroyed everybody else's worldview and household. And you follow them home at the end of their day. They put in a long day's work of deconstruction. And then you realize, you don't have a house. You don't have anything that's built up. You just deconstruct. You sit in this privileged perch of deconstruction. You don't have anything that you've actually built. A worldview that stands up. That's what's going on all over, right? Church, what do we do in a day like we have today? What we do, I would urge you and plead with you, hang on to the truth. Our best move is Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. You ask the book of Hebrews, what's the church do when it gathers together? You know what Hebrews says? Here's what the church does. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. It's right to believe this. We doubt our doubts and we trust this. We trust God who is good. The truth is not determined by my feelings. God doesn't need your amen. He doesn't need my amen. Truth is truth. We stand on truth. He knows which way is up. That's our flourishing. Jeremiah spoke God's truth unflinchingly for 40 years. (laughs) Talk about goals. He spoke God's word unflinchingly for 40 years. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he's talking to his protege, leader of the church, who's preaching to the church at Ephesus, guy named Timothy, and he says, Timothy, you got one job, preach the word. Preach it in season, and also preach it out of season, which just means preach it when the church is begging for it, and says, you can't give us enough of this word, and preach it when the church is begging for everything else but the word. You still preach the word. You throw it straight down the middle every week, looking at God's word on the Lord's day. Jeremiah did that. He did it for 40 years. Jeremiah, whoever you stood up in front of him, whatever king, he spoke truth to power just as God said it, he said it. He said, Josiah, you want the Bible? Happy to give you the Bible. He says, Jehoiakim, you don't want the Bible? I'm still gonna give you the Bible. I'm still gonna give you God's word. So he spoke it to Josiah. He spoke it to Jehoiakim. He spoke truth to Zedekiah when the whole world caved in that famous fifth month, that 11th year of Zedekiah. That was a legendary day in the history of God's people because that's the day that the curtain fell. That's that's the day when everything caved in. Babylon took over, loaded up the buses and carried off the people to exile. And the beautiful thing about the relentlessness of the word is even when they're in exile, read Jeremiah 29, exile community by the river Kibar and they get a letter from Jerusalem. And who wrote the letter? In one sense, Jeremiah wrote the letter. You know who else wrote the letter? God wrote the letter. God was still speaking even when they were in God-forsaken country, even when they were all the way out in Babylon, the word still unrelentingly beat a path down the road and found them in ruins. 
A friend of mine posted a quote this week. I loved it. It just simply said this. I'm glad Jesus never says, this is the last time I'll put you back together. That's, that's the relentlessness of the word. Even in the midst of ruin, his word keeps chasing us. His promises keep finding us in our darkness. The word of God comes when all is well, when all is wrong, and when all is lost. In blessing and in resistance and in ruin, it just keeps coming. So what do we do? Three things. Three truths to hold on to. Number one, all true blessing comes into our lives by God's word. So as a church, we often talk about Psalm 1. It's one of my favorite psalms. I can't resist talking about that psalm because I just love that image. Anybody can get it. Children can understand, right? You got, you got a tree and you got water. And you got a happy tree because it's always got leaves on it. And it's always got leaves because it's next to the water. It's always drinking. It's drinking day and night. It's drinking from fresh waters. And the psalm says, I'll tell you who that person is in real life. It's the person who meditates on God's word day and night. This is an image I want of every believer at the Church of Brook Hills. Men, women, boys, girls where your tree is right next to that water and your roots are just drinking, drinking, day by day, tomorrow morning, I wanna see you, I wanna imagine you getting up, getting yourself a warm beverage of your choosing, opening God's word, getting your roots down by the water and drinking life, drinking truth, drinking in the promises so that his truths renew our minds and it's Christ, the Christ of the Bible becomes my passion. Second, the Lord doesn't leave his people without direction even in the darkest of times. You read, so we talked about Psalm 19 earlier, talked about Psalm 1 just now, Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible and it's just basically the psalmist just goes and finds a rock somewhere and just starts thinking, what value does God's word add to my life? How can I count the ways? There's gonna be about 176 ways that God's word strengthens my soul. And you just read Psalm 119 and just start marking them down. One of the things that you're gonna hear the psalmist saying time and time again is, I thought it was over, but then your word came. I thought I was done, my afflictions had done me in and then your word came and gave me hope and gave me life. The Lord doesn't leave his people without direction even in the darkest of times and then third and finally, God does not give up as easily as we do. <laughs> you know, everybody needs the kind of friend you can't shake. I, I think about I've got a number of friends I can't shake. Not that I want to shake them, but if I tried, I couldn't. And, and one of the, my earliest friends that I can't shake is a guy named Craig Renfro. I met Craig the first day of college, and, uh, and he's become a friend that I just can't shake. He texted me this week. Just at random times, it'll be three-month intervals or six-month or once a year. But, but there he is again, pulling up in my phone and just updating me on him. And Manishak, that's his wife, she's from Armenia, and he'll ask about my wife, Paula, or about our kids, or he'll text and just say, hey, remember that time we almost got jumped at the Dallas Arena? And it's like, yeah, actually, I tried to forget, but yeah, I remember that occasion. Um, near scrape with death next to Craig Renfro that evening, right? He, 
So if I had to lay odds, let's just say I fast forward and I'm 85. So there's a, life, there's a lot of life intervening between now and me at 85. There's a lot of uh, people passing and uh, paths crossing and acquaintances and new friends and play, right? All that between now and me at 85. And if I had to lay odds, who's the friend that I probably still can't shake when I'm 85 years old? Who's gonna just still be reliably showing up in my phone saying, hey, here's me in Manishak. <laughs> or hey, do you remember that time we almost got jumped into the Dallas Arena, which thankfully I probably won't by that point. I probably won't for, remember, right? But if I had to lay odds, that friend I'm not gonna be able to shake is probably gonna be Craig Renfro. <laughs> he has a way about him. God's word has this way about it. What is the way? It has this way of, of continuing to keep coming. It, it doesn't shake easy. It will keep coming when you feel like you're just going through the motions. It will keep coming when you are tempted to burn up your faith and just be done with it. And it will keep coming when you find yourself in Babylon in the unthinkable place far, far from home and the word of God just keeps beating its path toward you. What a gift, the word of God.